Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Are you feeling lost about how to get your business found online? Simply Integrated helps direct qualified traffic to your website and then turn those visitors into paying customers. Learn more at simplyintegratedllc.com. We have covered so many personality differences on previous episodes of The Savvy Sauce. A few reasons why we're so interested in highlighting these differences is to first point to our infinitely creative creator who designed us all uniquely to work together as we build each other up and share a few applicable ways we can celebrate and lean into our differences rather than resisting them. It's easier to assume the best when we gain more understanding and that's exactly what I hope you get from today's message. Hayden Shaw is our knowledgeable guest, and he's just released his revised edition of one of his books entitled Sticking Points. He has researched and helped clients regarding generational differences for over 20 years, and now we get to learn from his expertise about all the generations working better together. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Hayden. I am glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you are the expert on getting generations to work harmoniously together. How did you originally get into this line of work? Actually, I was starting churches, and I started a church 30 years ago. The generations weren't showing up to Protestant churches in the same way. Baby boomers didn't come as much, and so we were trying to figure out what was different, and that got me paying attention to generational differences. And then when I began to work with businesses, I noticed a lot of the same patterns. It's really ironic that churches are kind of the cutting edge of generational research because businesses have to pay people to show up. But in churches, you know, especially for Protestant churches, they can go try something else that that fits their generational preferences better. So you often learn where things are going um, in churches even before businesses. Well, that's fascinating. That's not a connection I would have made before today. But if you just assume that we don't know any of the years or the defining characteristics of generations, how would you give an overview of the differences between generations? Let's just talk the years real quickly. So you got traditionalists, and they're born before 1945. And, you know, uh, Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation. Sometimes people know them as that because, you know, they went through two world wars and a depression and built an economy and a country and a democracy out of that. And then you've got the baby boomers who they were born 46 through 64. So they were raised off the farm and in the cities for the most part, uh, almost a flip-flop from two-thirds in the rural areas to two-thirds in urban and suburban areas between the traditionalists and the baby boomers, and that had a huge impact. And part of it is they didn't have to worry about eating lunch as much as the traditionalists did. So they focused more on, um, you know, are we really living out uh, the true meaning of our creed, to quote Dr. King? And so they pushed for things that were in the Bill of Rights and, you know, that the that people fought for in World War II, but weren't actually being applied or lived out in the United States. So that was one of their defining characteristics. The Xers, born before 65 um, to 1980, and they were more cynical. They ended up with, instead of a growing economy after World War II, you know, World War II um, wiped out a whole lot of factories in Europe. You know, a third of the world's manufactured goods came from the United States. And, once the world recovered, that began to decline. And so the United States boom years also began to decline. And we began to have you know recessions and people complaining about impact of global economy. Uh, that wasn't really a part of the boomers growing up years. And so life was a bit bumpier for the Xers. You know, their longest running television show was The Simpsons. And it's more tongue in cheek and more cynical view of the world. And then you've got the millennials who came along with when children were considered to be just remarkable in 1981 to 1998. And uh, you know, Disney was considering getting out of film when the Xers were young adults. And suddenly the, a surge of babies came along and the millennials saved them. And now almost every movie turns into a billion dollar product line. And so Disney didn't have to let it go, let it go when it came to making movies because they were making big money with, uh, with millennial kids. 
And then finally, Gen Z's, people born after 1998. And they were raised by a combination of younger baby boomer parents and older Gen Xer parents. And I'm far more cynical about things. You know, you can't be anything you want to be. And I'm not going to go. I'm not going in debt. And I'm not. You're not going in debt for a university degree in something that you can't make a living out of. So do art or theater as a hobby. But um, I don't want to hear it. And uh, that was not necessarily the case with <laughs> with the millennials. How's that for a quick rundown on them all? That's incredible. And it also makes me wonder, then, are there any ways that we're all similar regardless of age? Yeah, it's funny. I was teaching a class for the uh, Department of Transportation for Orange County, California, and someone said, all right, we spent the last three and a half hours talking about how we're, you know, how we're different. How are we similar? And I said, well, I'm just going to let you talk about that at your tables. And when they came back, they said, actually, we're a lot more similar than we are different, aren't we? Which is why I call the book Sticking Points, uh, how to get the five generations working together in the 12 places they come apart, rather than it's all going to blow. Because the things that bring us together, especially the needs that we have in common, are, are far greater than the things that, that pull us apart. Um, and that's the good news. That's the hopefulness of it. Take dress code, for example, the most divisive of the 12 generational sticking points. You know, trying to have a conversation around dress code with your own kids in their teenage years is, a, is enough. Hey, that's, you know, that's too short or that doesn't cover enough or that's not modest. Those are all fun conversations to have when raising kids. Imagine what it's like when you're a manager with different generations at work. And yet the common need is to look both attractive and professional. And so... The common need gives us a place to get started in a common conversation. That's just really helpful to hear you put it that way. And then also, as we do look at those differences, though, how much differentiation typically exists within each generation? Well, it's really interesting that there's, I think, differences on three levels. The first one is each generation has to finish unfinished business of the generation before it. So take the traditionalists, the greatest generation. They made incredible sacrifices in order to win World War I and World War II. So Johnny comes marching home and has a lot of babies really fast. And part of the reason they did is they were pretty serious. Um, they came back and they'd seen a lot and they'd seen a lot of ugliness. And they'd said, we're going to rebuild this country and prove that democracy is right. And we are going to make this work because the alternatives we saw were unspeakable. Well, the unfinished business then of the baby boomers were to live out their dream of proving the success of, you know, the American way of life. And so it's interesting that baby boomers are 5% less happy throughout their entire lifespan than the other generations because of these really high expectations. They're also getting divorced at higher levels. They're getting divorced now that they're over 55. It's called the, you know, the gray wave of divorce. They're getting divorced over 55 more than any other generation got divorced. And more than, you know, the Xers or the millennials are expected to get divorced. They simply have the highest divorce rate because they have such high expectations. They have this unfinished business that has both shaped them and caused them some of their greatest problems. And then you've got the Xers whose unfinished business was dealing with the unfulfilled dreams of the baby boomers to live out their you know, new lifestyle. I was talking to a client um, about an article I was commissioned to write on how the marriages were different in each of the generations. And I know that's a particular interest of you because of the work you've done for years and how marriages are different in the generations. And so I was talking to a client who's a millennial and she said, what's so interesting that my parents and my parents' friends have some real tensions in their marriage because it's not a tradition, completely traditional marriage because all the, all the women worked, but they worked at jobs, not careers. And so they resented their husband's for some of the decisions and some of the you know control they had because they made more money. But at the same time, they didn't want the pressure of having a career like I and, and my generation do. So they found themselves caught in between that. And so in many ways, Gen, Gen X had to work out the addition of the growing divorce, the, the broken families, and the implications of that, plus the changing economy and changing political realities the United States faced in the global economy. He had to face all of that and to sort it through. And so part of it came through sarcasm and The Simpsons, and part of it came through parody and Stephen Colbert and all those news shows. They got their news more from parody shows of newscasters than they did from the actual news shows. 
because parody was one of the ways they worked that out. And then millennials and Jesus both have their own unfinished business to deal with. So each generation is different in their unfinished business. And each generation is different in the challenges that they have, the political challenges, the worldwide challenges. And uh, each generation is different in the questions they ask. And that's especially important for families and, you know, for those of your listeners who are religious. It's caused a lot of tension. Well, I know we're focused on my my newest book, a previous book I wrote on, on families and churches and generational differences goes into much more depth about the new questions that the younger generations are asking and how we're often 15 years behind in religious circles and answering those questions. And by that time, a new generation comes along. And so my goal was to hopefully get us better at understanding and answering questions more quickly so that we keep up. Well, and I want to get into a lot of the different parts of sticking points with this revised edition. But first, just as we're laying this foundation, when you look at the differentiation within each generation for, let's just say, a Gen Z may look different if they had millennials as parents or Gen Xers as parents. Or for millennials, how about this? If someone was born in 1982, are they going to view the world a lot differently from someone in the same generation who was born in 1992? You have asked a question no one's asked me. So, yes. And let me put a good millennial explanation point on that yes. The uh, millennials use more explanation points in emails and texts than other generations do. So let me give you a good millennial uh, yes to that. And now I'm going to geek out on you for just a moment. Get all excited as a geek who likes this sociological stuff. Each generation is actually the product of the second half of one generation and the first half of another generation, just like you pointed out. The millennials are the second half of boomers and the first half of Xers. And, you know, Gen Z is the uh, second half of Gen X parents and the first half of millennial parents. And so that leads to some subtle differences. Even more than that, it's a continuum. You know, nobody wakes up one day in the Bureau of Labor Statistics and says, OK, officially, this child is the first of the millennials. It's more of a continuum. And that's why researchers call the people who are in between cuspers. They're on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z, for example. They don't I have a daughter who's a cusper. She has some characteristics of millennials and some characteristics of Gen Z, whereas her older brother, who was born in 1989, is pure millennial. Uh, whereas, you know, she has some Gen Z in there, just to your question, because their ages fit that whole spectrum. Wow, that you could just go in so many different directions with this, but that kind of helps people understand how they're going to relate to everything that they're hearing. Thank you for not acting bored. And can you send my wife an email saying, see, it's not that boring at different parties. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, I've also heard you teach how common misconceptions can come from confusing life stage with generational bias. So will you just elaborate on that idea? Well, that's just uh, the second half of the question you just asked. And uh, so let me geek out a little more on, are they different in the same generation? Well, it's a continuum. And definitely you have parents of different generations that help shape the front half and back half of a generation. But even more than that, over 15 to 20 years of a generation, you're going to have people in different places in the life cycle, which is why I had to update the Sticking Points book. You know, people kept asking me, when are you going to cover Gen Z? Well, you know, Gen Z is just barely getting out of college and into the workplace. It's certainly, you know, they matter. And if they didn't go to college, then they've been in the workplace for a while. So it's not that they don't matter. It's just that millennials as well needed an update. And that's because millennials now have three life stages. You've got the millennials who are emerging adults, 18 to 28, this new life stage that researchers have identified in the last 15 years. And when I ask people to hold up their hand, maybe two out of 100 have heard of emerging adulthood, so it's an important part of the conversation. Matter of fact, my wife always says to me, you didn't mention emerging adulthood. Would you mention the most helpful stuff? So she's right. For many people are like, oh, that turns on the lights. So you've got emerging adult millennials, and then you've got millennials who are out of emerging adulthood. And as I updated the book, I tell the story of my son, who's uh, you know 31 now, who said to me, are you guys still talking about millennials? I got a kid in a mortgage. 
and millennials turn 40 next year. They're protected by age discrimination laws for the first time next year. So we often think of millennials as 20-somethings when they cover a whole range of life stages and companies and families. You know, we have to treat them differently. You don't talk to a 25-year-old the same way you talk to a, you know, a 37-year-old. And they're at different life stages. They expect different things from their parents and from the way they interact. And so it's an adjustment. For all of us, especially because, you know, most of us haven't heard of a new life stage since adolescence in the 1890s. And so you're saying that whatever generation it is, that maybe they get blamed for certain things like, oh, they're just so irresponsible or they have such a poor work ethic, regardless of their generation. But that may be more so attributed to their life stage. Is that right? Yes, for the most part, that's correct. Matter of fact, I did a TED Talk. It's called Why Half of What You Heard About Millennials Is Wrong. And it takes a look at not just misinformation or misstatistics about millennials. What it looks at is half the things that get blamed on millennials are actually a product of emerging adulthood, this new life stage. And so well, millennials aren't loyal to organizations. Millennials have a lot more freedom before they settle down. Nobody stayed with organizations since we left the farm. After World War II, nobody stayed with organizations before they married as long. And because millennials settled down less quickly, you know, the average age of males now is 30 and the average age of females is a 27 and a half for marriage now. And so because they settled down longer, they've got a lot more freedom to move around. And that gets blamed on being the millennials. They're not reliable. When you should say emerging adulthood, it's less settled and more prone to change than later life stages. Well, we will certainly link to that TED Talk in our show notes and on our resources tab. And now a brief message from our sponsor. Francie and her team at Simply Integrated provide marketing expertise that helps your online presence work for you. They understand the challenges of entrepreneurship and help their small business clients develop an online presence that turns leads into repeat customers. With website design, analytics review, and optimization strategy, the future of your small business is in good hands with the warm, expert team at Simply Integrated. Having a marketing strategist in your corner allows you to run your business on your terms. For instance, Francie and her team helped one central Illinois appliance business exponentially grow by six times in just two years by advising on what matters most when it comes to creating a strong online presence. Visit simplyintegratedllc.com to review their service offerings and to be in touch with a member of the Simply Integrated team. Tell them that the Savvy Sauce sent you for 10% off your new website or on one of their growth-focused website audits. You don't have to do it all alone. Work with a proven marketing team that understands how to get results and empower you with the information you need to make good decisions in your business. Again, that's simplyintegratedllc.com. Thanks for your sponsorship. Hayden, through your research done on Gen Z for the updates to this book that we're referencing, Sticking Points, which findings especially surprised you? Well, it's really complicated if you're reading newspapers and such. Back when I was traveling a lot, I'd get USA Today underneath my hotel room door, and it covers generations a lot, for example. One article will say, Gen Z, they're millennials on steroids. And another post will come out and say, Gen Z, you think you know them, but they're not like millennials at all. And the point is, they're like millennials on some things and not at all like millennials on others. That makes sense because they've got Gen Xer parents and millennial parents. And so, of course, they're going to have some differences in there. They're going to be a refraction of both of those generations. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Politically speaking, they are millennials on steroids. Almost every issue millennials have, they have it, it are even more to the left than millennials. And when it comes to staying at a job, they are more like Xers. Like, for example, one survey asked millennials when they were graduating from university, they asked him, would you rather have a job that you're passionate about or a job with stability and financial security? And, you know, 68% of them said passion. Whereas the numbers were flipped, almost flipped. 67% of Xers said stability. 
So the numbers were almost flipped. Now that's a significant difference. What's interesting though, is that both generations say they wanna stay at the same employer for long amounts of time, as long as they get promotions and raises. And as I like to joke, you know, as a person who's six foot one, I don't fit into a subcompact car well. well it's, you know, I'll pick up a rental car and they'll say, oh yeah, the one we had proof for you, you can't get into. All right, let me find you something else. So saying that subcompact cars are great for gas mileage and great for the environment is a true statement. It's just not helpful for me at all. And saying, you know, well, I'm, I'll stay in the organization if you can get me promotions and raises. Well, that's something to your earlier question all generations would agree with. And so while it may be true, it's just not that helpful of information. What's more helpful is to understand some of the nuances between millennials and Gen Z, so we speak their language. Hmm. And could you share just one or two nuances for us to grasp? Oh, you bet. I'm currently writing an article for a, a magazine for church leaders. And you know, one of the questions is, well, how do millennials and Gen Zs contribute to your staff? Well, one of the things they contribute is younger millennials and Gen Zs understand social media today better than older millennials do. For example, the big social media organizations had to change their algorithms so that scroll speed counted as well as time one page, because you know, that's what they were counting was, oh, they don't stay on your page very long. Well, because Gen Zers scroll so quickly, if you've ever watched, if you've got you know children in, in high school and you watch them scroll, they can't read anything. It's just a blur. They're looking at the pictures and they'll stop at a picture. Now, what's interesting is, you know, whereas a millennial would read five or six reviews, it's not uncommon at all for Gen Zs to read 100 reviews before they make a purchase. So they may scroll quickly, but when something catches their eye, they go deep. Whereas millennials tend to scroll less quickly, but to want a little more information up front, other than, you know, more words than, uh, as well as pictures, but they don't go nearly as deep. And so they don't need as much information. So people used to, to writing things for websites for millennials will often not provide the level of detail that Gen Z's want before they make a purchase or before they decide to come to work for a company or before they feel comfortable showing up at a church, either physically or online. And so just understanding those subtle differences between the two help us, as well as understanding that both generations believe that they can contribute ideas for technology. But Gen Z are especially sensitive to being shown the ropes. You know, whereas I had a woman who was one of the two leading realtors in her town, in her city, small city. And she said, I try to offer help to the new realtors. And they're like, oh, you know, it's fine. I can figure it out. And kind of what she said, I know what they're thinking is, oh, she's so old school. She probably doesn't know how to go online for ads. Whereas, you know, she was one of the two most respected, best-selling year after year after year. Whereas Gen Z is much more known to come in and go, okay, what, what's the success path? What are the hangups? What are the hacks? What do I need to know? And they tend to wait until people who are in authority or leaders or their managers will give them clear direction rather than take more initiative. It's neither here nor there. It's just an important thing for a manager to know, you know, in, in getting the best out of them. I can see where we can learn so much from studying this. And that's just one of the reasons why your books have been so helpful. But aside from the addition of Gen Z to Sticking Points, what have been some of the major changes in intergenerational dynamics that you've noted in recent years? Well, one of the things, of course, is that traditionalists are now mostly out of the workplace. There's only about 1% of traditionalists in, in the workplace, and they are in a different phase of their life. And so as a result, the book still covers them, but I shortened the chapter on traditionalists. You know, people have said, well, why would you cover them? Uh, because you can't really understand the, or, you know, they're the, the greatest generation. They're the ones that built the institutions. As much as we want to change them, as much as we may agree or disagree that they're working well today, uh, they are the ones that created the blueprints for the organizations that we all work and live in. And so that's one of the big changes is they're not directly involved in business, although their imp impact and influence is still huge. Secondly, the baby boomers are at the life stage where they are in many cases, more interested in sharing leadership. You know, when you're building your career, you're often fighting for your position. But once you get to about the age the baby boomers are, now you move into the life stage where you're looking at your legacy more. And so there's often a greater desire to say, well, who can I bring up? Who can I teach? 
So that's changed the competitive dynamic a bit. More than that, once you get past 45, most people have kind of decided where they want to be in, in the ladder of an organization. They've kind of decided I probably never will be a vice president or CEO, and they've become to get more comfortable in that. And so that leads to not always, but that leads to some greater collaboration. It was the baby boomers who were put on all those ropes courses and trust falls because they were raised being told to, to cover the answers on their tests. And my millennial children were sitting to their finals with an index card with key formulas or to work on their finals in a team. And so in my generation, that would have been called cheating. Today, it's called collaboration and working together for the answer. You know, can you imagine somebody coming to the workplace going, I'm going to cover my answer. I'm going to cover my answers with my hands so you can't see them. Um, you what? No, you no, you what? You have to share. And so collaboration is expected. today. That's one of the big adjustments is it's in the boomers of the life stage where it comes more natural. Gen X has moved into many of the leadership positions that boomers were in when I wrote the first edition of the book seven years ago. And Gen Xers are a fairly independent breed and so are sometimes caught off guard by Gen Z, even though they raised them, sometimes caught off guard by Gen Z at work and how much time and attention they want. It's funny, Gen Z in survey after survey say, if you can't coach, don't even call yourself a manager. You, you, you don't even qualify for the word manager if you're not a coach. Whereas, you know, Gen X didn't have a lot of coaching. They were kind of thrown into the deep end and figured out how to swim on their own. And so those are just some of the differences that roll out. They can make it easier for us to work together in these changes or make it more difficult if we don't understand them. Okay, so like you've mentioned, we now have five different generations working side by side in the workforce. So what are those sticking points that keep us from cooperating harmoniously? Yes, there are 12 of them. We put them in alphabetical order. Communication, decision-making, dress code we already mentioned, feedback we've illustrated with, fun at work, knowledge transfer. Uh, what are we doing to transfer knowledge from the older generations to the younger generations so that when we they retire, we're not missing key key know-how. Loyalty, we've already talked about that. Meetings, policies, the Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, how the different generations define respect, that will get us into knots. Training and then work ethic are the 12, 12 sticking points where the generations run into most often. Well, then let's just choose that last one, work ethic, and we'll zero in on that. How does that show up differently in each generation? Well, Gen Z says that they won't even consider marrying until 30 because they have to put the priority on their career if they're going to have enough money to have what they want for their family and to pay off their student loans. And so work ethic for them is, well, of course I need to show up on time. And while a third of them prefer a formal dress at work and a third of them, and formal dress for them would not mean, you know, a tie or hose, by the way. That's a traditional era. Traditionalist era is gone. But formal dress, you know, a jacket and a blazer. And a third of them would prefer casual dress, whatever jeans or shorts you want to wear. Most of them don't care. And so what it illustrates is, hey, I need to buckle down. I need to move my career forward. Whereas millennials were legendary when they were in their earlier 20s. <laughs> well, I was at DeVita, the people who, who do a dialysis. And one of their vice presidents said to me, tell me if this is generational or this is really an issue. I love the millennials on my team. They're creative, they're efficient, and <laughs> they, they can help coach some of us on new technology because they just pick it up so fast. But the one thing that gets me is they'll come in 20 minutes late and instead of calling like a boomer would and telling you the whole story, even if you don't want to hear it, as to what went wrong and why they're late and how they're going to stay seven minutes over so that they make up the time. A millennial walk in 20 minutes late and they'll be carrying a Starbucks and they won't even acknowledge it. They'll just say hello and head to their desk. And you know, I, I, I responded to their question. I said, well, OK, that is true. And I have asked them about that because it's come up repeatedly. And the millennials say, okay, so the older generation comes in right at 8.30 and they start up their computers and then they go make coffee. And then they talk for 15 minutes while they make coffee. And then they start work at 10 till. 
We start work at Tin Till. The only difference is they drink bad coffee. <laughs> and so when you really peel back things on this and ask people why, rather than just assume the what, we get better at the sticking points because we see that for the most part, generations are trying to meet those shared needs, often in different ways. But there's a rational, logical reason behind why they do things. We're just so busy pointing out what they're doing that we don't get curious and ask why they're doing it. And if you'll just do that one thing, ask why rather than what, you'll watch your generational IQ skyrocket and you'll also find yourself less wound up about things that irritate you with other generations. I feel like that's a golden nugget right there. And just continuing so we do understand them better, could you carry that work ethic out for Gen Z on up? Certainly. So we've talked about Gen Z and millennials. Gen Z tends to buckle down. Millennials were a little more free-flowing when it came to work ethic and very focused on work-life balance. Gen X was focused on work-life balance. So there's a little backstory to that. Gen X was raised with a doubling of the divorce rate. Now, it's never been the 50% that you always hear about. It's probably not been higher than 30, 35% in U.S. history, but it had still doubled. When Xers, when you see I had latchkey children in Generation X because we didn't have the support systems for children's programs, after school programs and, and such. And so you know, they were walking home with a key around their neck and taking a casserole out of the fridge and putting it in the oven for dinner and helping their younger siblings with homework. So they said, there's no way I'm going to put my kids through these kind of divorces. And and while the you know the divorce rate is hasn't been as high, it's higher than millennials, but it hasn't been as high as baby boomers because they were pretty committed to it. Plus, Xers had were the first time in history that there were slightly more women graduating college than men. And so you had two career families, not just families with two jobs. And because of that, work-life balance became a really critical uh, feature. Plus, they could get by with it because they were the smallest of the generations. And so, you know, if you said to somebody, hey, do you want this promotion? No. No, that's a killer job. Uh, and there's a Friends episode where Chandler Bing falls asleep in a meeting. And then when he wake, was asked to go to Tulsa to, be, <laughs> to run that location, and he wakes up and says yes, and then has to go home to Monica and explain that they're moving to Tulsa because he was asleep. And people in Tulsa are like, yes, we've seen the episode. Tulsa's a city. Back off. Anyway, the point of it is uh, it was it was humorous because no extra would say yes to a job without going back and talking to their, their spouse, or in this case, their, you know, their partner. And so point of it is Xers were very committed to work-life balance, which made the older generations kind of freak out that they weren't committed to work and committed to do anything for the organization. And the number of boomers who couldn't find anybody who wanted a promotion to a remote location um, had a lot of them grumbling and flying for a week a month to uh, Minot or Boise, Idaho, or someplace else that may not have been the top on people's list. I say Boise because, you know, it was the number one city last year for people to move to. So that way they couldn't be too offended. And then let's go to boomers. So boomers were the workaholics of the uh, corporate world. Crazy people. Partly because of the competition that was involved. Those of us who are younger forget just how many boomers there were and how few spots there were for promotions. And so it was not uncommon at all. And I had a boss who, who had been a senior executive at IBM who had you know, come over the company I was working for, who had said it was so like that. You got three offers. And if one of them was Tulsa, you better take it because you don't know where the third one would be. And after the third one, they didn't ask again for the rest of your career. They didn't ask again. You had to be to get up and, and move. And, you know, he just gave an illustration of how dedicated you had to be. When he was with IBM and sales, they put them through 15 weeks of sales training in Atlanta. So they flew him from his home in San Jose to Atlanta. They just got married. And their first year of marriage, he was gone for 15 weeks. And because, you know, because long distance was two bucks a minute back then. And IBM was a family friendly company. He got 30 minutes a week to call home on the company dime. Whereas, can you imagine saying today, all right, you can have the sales job, but it's 15 weeks away from home. People would just, well, it just wouldn't happen at so many levels. So baby boomers were out of, you know, out of control. He, he said, instead of being frustrated, my wife and I went out and celebrated that we got a job offer for IBM. We had made it. Our ship had come in. 
because the expectations were so different on how much you had to work. And then lastly, traditionalists. I was with a group of people at my church, and after a meeting was over, they were talking about different generations. And somebody said to a traditionalist, were you happy? And he goes, I don't know. Let me think about it. I, I don't know. We, I, we never thought about whether or not we were happy. We loved our family. We had a duty to do, and we just did it. Duty was a key word. And so ironically, unless they were on a farm, often traditionalists worked fewer hours because they had factory jobs for the most part, where it had a nine to five schedule. And now now some of the tradition would be like, you don't remember right, buddy. Now, don't get me wrong. There were some people in private businesses where they did what they were asked to do. But part of what happened is unions began to make it so that you did your eight to four or your nine to five. You did your shift and anything over was, you know, had to be negotiated for overtime and et cetera. So ironically, in many ways, traditionalists, while people see them as the hardest working and they were, actually had fewer hour demands on them. Wow, I've never heard it put that way before. That's really interesting. Well, to get beyond these sticking points, how can we work best together by leveraging our generational strengths? Well, the great question you asked about work ethic, if we'll just take, and I covered, a, you know, I covered basically the uh, 80% of what's in the chapter on the sticking point of work ethic when it comes to why do they think the way they do. If you notice, I spend most of my time talking about why, because the what doesn't do any good. If I tell you that you need to listen more than you talk with your emerging adult children, you know, if you're a parent of 20-somethings, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Sure, I've heard that all my life. But they're just so wrong about this and this and this, and they need me. I, I just, They just worry me. If you don't understand the why behind the questions they're asking and the questions their friends are asking and the questions that people and their jobs and online ask, if you don't understand the different questions that their generation faces, you will keep talking like the generation that made the baby boomers crazy and will all seem a bit like, you know, some of you will have to go look this up, but it was the number one show for two different years. All in the family will all seem like Archie Bunker. And so the key is to just focus on the why and get curious and ask questions because most of us, just from hearing why, can already see ways to flex to other generations' needs or better yet, to leverage the strengths they bring to a situation or to a sticking point. If we just get good at understanding why, we're a whole lot better at flexing and leveraging. And actually, we just covered three of the five key steps in leading through generational differences. And so you're saying the what, maybe we find that to be humorous and relatable, but it also could be more irritating and irritating. I was going to say could be more divisive, whereas if we get more to that root and we come in with genuine curiosity and ask why, you're saying that may lead to either unity or just going to higher heights, I guess. Well, you wouldn't necessarily talk about love at work. But um, although Colin Powell did, that's my best definition of leadership. I talk in the book about my favorite definition of leadership is when I heard General Powell say, you got to wake up in the morning and love your soldiers. You got to go to bed at night and love your soldiers. You got to wake up in the morning and love your soldiers. Who would have thought that love was the most important thing for making a general effective in a military organization? Mm -hmm. And so I guess love does apply to work as well as families. And we can't love people we don't like. And we can't like people we don't appreciate. And we'll never appreciate people we don't understand. Wow. There are so many good nuggets. I'm just going to reflect on that for a long time when I go back and get to re-listen to this conversation. One of our filters in making decisions at the Savvy Sauce is generosity. We want to offer you more than we ever ask of you. So we don't expect you to participate in all these ways. But we do want to ask you to follow through with at least one of these options. So here's our agreement offer. Our team wants to keep pouring in the time and finances to bring you these episodes each week. On your end, will you choose at least one of the following? First, you can simply share this episode on social media or through a text message. You have access to people we may never get to meet, so please let them know about us if you find these messages to be valuable. 
You can also zip over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. This helps other listeners find us more easily, and then we can grow together. Also, if you are going to buy anything we recommend, would you do it through the links listed in our show notes? This costs you nothing extra, but it does give us a tiny kickback to fund our work. You can also become an advertiser on The Savvy Sauce, and we are happy to answer any questions for you regarding advertising when you email us at info at thesavvysauce.com. And finally, will you become a patron? This is a minimal investment each month where you pay either $2, 5 or $20, and then you get to receive bonus episodes and downloadable goodies as a thank you from us. We hope you choose at least one of these options to follow through on today. Thank you for being our friends and our listeners. We would not be here without you. You mentioned leadership, and a lot of people listening today are leaders in some capacity, whether at home or at work. So as leaders, how can we understand and inspire every age group in our workplace while minimizing those tension points? Well, in the book, I cover five steps. We've already mentioned three of them. So let's just go through them in order. The first one is leaders can lead through generational differences by just acknowledging. Oh, I think this is generational. Now, it's really easy to stereotype all people who are 27. um, I think this one might be generational. And what it does is it takes it out of the conflict of these people and makes it something, huh, I wonder why, because your generation, you can't control. You can't control when you were born. You can't control what influences shaped you. It gives us something we can talk about rather than fight each other over. And so first we just acknowledge it. We just put it on the table as potentially generational. Then we begin to appreciate. We begin to ask why, not what, and we search for the common need. That's the second part of step two. Number three, we flex. We begin to flex around those differences. And, you know, often just understanding how people see it different and that they're not being irrational to their generation with the questions that their generation has to answer with the unfinished business that they have to deal with, that those things they do actually make some sense. And so you begin to go, huh, all right, well, why don't we just do this? So just appreciating another generation almost always leads to flexing. But if we want to up our results, leaders can also focus on leveraging. When I talked earlier about you know, the, your question about the differences between millennials and Gen Z and some practical things, just understanding how they consume a media and the internet differently helps us come up with different websites and different amounts of information and far more pictures uh, for one rather than the other. And so understanding all of that allows us to leverage each generation. It makes no sense for a Gen Xers to be designing a website whose goal is to attract 23-year-olds to the organization. That just doesn't make any sense. And so we can leverage the strengths of each generation much more effectively when we understand the differences. And then with half the sticking points, just acknowledging, appreciating, and then flexing and leveraging is enough. They go away. But for some of them, we have to resolve them. We have to come to some agreement on how we're going to handle it. But that's always a lot easier when people appreciate each other and are willing to flex. So what kind of meetings are we going to have? Well, Tuesday, we're going to have a boomer meeting. And then next week, we'll have a Xer meeting. And then the week after, we'll have a millennial meeting. And then the week after that, we'll have a Gen Z meeting. No. What's our meeting format that works for all the generations, even though we all may have to give and take a bit? But once we understand why, we find ourselves in a much better place to flex for that and then to come to a resolution. It's not the law of the Medes and the Persians. We're not going to do it that way forever, but uh, at least for the next year or two until we reopen and see if it still works. We've come to an agreement, so we don't have to spend all our time caught up in a sticking point. But the very fact that we led through the generational difference makes the team more capable of working together across generations, makes them stick together. That's why it's actually kind of a double meaning to the title. Sticking points can either get us stuck or sticking points can be the very trigger that gets us doing the kind of conversations and work that helps us with good leadership stick together. Oh, I love that dual meaning. And let's just go one step further with this topic and bring in gender differences. 
So when I told a local female business owner I'd get to be interviewing you, she asked for your advice as a younger female CEO Mm -hmm. leading opposite gender team members who are from various generations above hers. So what advice would you like to offer someone like her? There's a long answer and then there's a dangerous short answer. Actually, anytime you talk about groups of people in a few categories, you know, you're talking about millions of people in North America and Europe, and uh, the research also applies into Australia and, and, and parts of Asia pretty closely. So if you're talking about, all right, billions of people, and you put them into five generational categories, you're going to be stereotyping to a degree. You're going to be generalizing is what I call in the book. Then when you add gender differences to that, a short answer can get really, people can go, that's not right. And, and for good reason, probably isn't. But I think most of us recognize that older generations had different relationships between men and women based on role and based on the level and kind of jobs that women had in organizations. 12% of traditionalists went to college, period. Whereas today, today when it comes to millennials and Gen Z, two thirds of the students are female and universities have to offer a lot of programs to help males in order to keep the balance they want in place. Women are graduating, the percentage when Xers graduate, first generation to graduate more Xers, Uh, women than men was only by 1%, but it's increased percentage-wise ever since. And so you often have women who are now have the education and the possibilities that they never would have had before. And so sometimes boomer men are unfamiliar with that and unfamiliar with how best to communicate. Sometimes they have the little lady kind of way of, or they talk to a younger woman like they would talk to their daughter. I was talking with a group of salespeople and I said, look, you did your whole business by building relationships. If you call a 25-year-old female purchasing agent and say, I'd like to take you to lunch and build a long-term relationship, she's calling HR because you're creepy. And so a lot of us who are older are like, all right, well, let me treat, you know, what other women do I know that are this age? Oh, my daughter, my nieces, my daughter's friends. And so they can come across as less professional or maybe a bit paternalistic. When for them, it is, for some of them, it's new territory. And a lot of them will say, oh, that's politically correct. You're just being politically correct. But within the National Speakers Association I'm a member of, one of the women posted something in our internal Facebook where she said, I know some of you older guys keep saying it's just politically correct, but actually that time is up. Now you're just considered mean by most people. Here's the language. Here's a university guide to gender language and you just need to memorize it because I know what I know what you mean to communicate and it's not coming across that way. So I just want to communicate that for some of you know some of us who are older, um, we're trying to learn the words and we're trying to learn the tune behind the words. And we may come across the way, but I also wrote an article on HuffPost about how to manage people, how to lead people your parents' age. So the device would apply even more for females than for males. Sometimes younger generations get themselves in trouble because they try to be a little more authoritarian to flex their muscle or to show their authority. And actually, the older generations appreciate authoritative, authoritarian management styles less than millennials and Gen Z do. And so if you kind of throw your weight around or speak with a bit of a this is how it is authoritarian style, because you've seen other leaders treat you that way and it looks like it great gains credibility, you'll actually make it worse because millennials didn't like it, but 40% of them said they can appreciate the need for it for time to time, whereas less than 20% of boomers said it was ever appropriate. Ironically, less than 10% of traditionalists ever thought authoritarian styles were appropriate. And so now to hear this, it doesn't work for either gender, But because of kind of the gender roles in previous generations, it works even less for women than it does for men with baby boomers and even some X or males. One of the great things about the way a lot of women manage is just the amount of communication and conversation that they've had all their lives. Now, I know anytime we talk about gender differences, people can go, whoa, 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 whoa. But I've seen a study. Overall, men and women talk with different rates and different amounts of words per day. And while they all get their messes across, the amount of communication 
men tend to use more energy to show empathy than women do when you hook them up to PET scans. And so the point of it is a young woman can take advantage of those natural strengths by being collaborative, by showing empathy, by listening well, and by being clear. One of the things the research has demonstrated is that women can sometimes say things in the passive. Uh, we need to hire some people to uh, strengthen our team, whereas a guy would say, oh, I got to get two more people hired right away on my team. And so they tend to be more indirect in the way they say things, and sometimes males don't understand it. So that was one tip that's come up through the research that many people have found helpful through the years when I've taught groups, is that uh, if females can just be clear as to what it is and when the deadline is, because not always, but males for the most part are more specific on things. Anyway, uh, once again, I know it's fraught with peril to talk in large generalizations, but hopefully that's helpful and there's quite a bit of research that would back those up. I think that's incredibly helpful and just well stated. Can you share a few more tactical recommendations for bridging the generational gaps? Well, yeah, let's just take a look at communication because I'm glad you picked work ethic. For much of the last 10 years, work ethic was the number one sticking point. Sometimes, you know, compared to dress code, probably four times more often work ethic came up. But I would say communication comes up now. Communication and respect come up now, at least if not in some groups, more than work ethic does. And so now that we have the five generations, it's just we learn about communication in a pretty simple way. We learn about it by how we dated. And so traditionalists, if you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George and Mary, they fall into the water in the swimming pool when the floor malfunctions. And when the, when, the, when the prank gets done, they're dancing, they fall in the water, they walk home, they sing, they fall in love. And uh, traditionalists, you know, eye contact matters a lot. I always joke with younger audiences, if you want to make $1,000 a minute, you go to your grandparents' house this weekend, you take your phone, you shut it off, you don't put it on mute. Are silent. You actually shut it off so they can see it shutting off. You hold it up, you place it face down, you slide it in the middle of the table, you take a cup of tea, and you say, hey, Grandma, what's going on? And you talk with eye contact for 45 minutes. When they know you can talk with eye contact, they will call the lawyer on Monday and change their will. You will make $1,000 <laughs> a minute. They want to give the money to you anyway and not your parents. They're just not sure if you're going to make it. And if you can talk with eye contact for a full 45 minutes, and you can talk their generation's language, you got it. And then on a more serious note, baby boomers, they talked on the phone. <laughs> now, this goes back to the question about male and females. Almost every boomer male knows the trepidation of calling and knowing that the dad had a chair by the phone, kind of like Captain Kirk in the original Star Trek in his control chair for the Starship Enterprise. And so when you called home, the old man was most likely answered the phone and he was going to say, who's this? And I have to admit, more than once, I panicked and just hung up because there wasn't caller ID back then. And then had to wait and call back again, hoping he wasn't there, but he was never not there. And so Xers didn't have that problem. Xers dated this way. That's the sound of, uh, that's the sound of people logging on to the old computers and uh, you know, logging on and then getting on to instant messaging and, or to chat rooms and communicating. Hi. Hi. What are you doing? What are you doing? How many young women bypassed dates that their fathers would have screened and told them under no circumstances? And I've had some admit to me, yeah, no, I dated some people who were kind of lame because my dad didn't screen him. And how many people now don't think anything of communicating through computer and then millennials and text messages and when Britney Spears asked for a divorce you know people were just like I cannot believe she is so messed up well everything else in her dating life had happened on text and part of it was an older generation not understanding how younger generations communicate a whole lot of people have said I love you on text and it used to be the classic line was why won't he call why won't he call Oh, I don't, what is wrong with guys and now it's why won't he text should I text him should I wait how long do you have to wait before you text? Uh, waiting to be phoned is pretty much out of the conversation as communication has changed. How we date communicates changed. So for an older generation, getting a text may not show love. To a younger generation, like, hey, look at this. We have a great relationship. Oh, by the way, I did figure out a way when my kids were in college to instantly get them to pick up the phone. 
You couldn't use it very often, but it worked amazingly well. It went like this. I'd send a text that said, reconsidering paying for your college education, call quickly. And um, yeah, you can only do it once or twice a semester. But uh, dude, I'm filling out your taxes for you because you waited till the deadline. The least you could do is pick up the phone and answer my questions. So anyway, and then for Gen Z, they are as comfortable and back in email again, but especially on all things social. And uh, what's really interesting about Gen Z is uh, they were told so often by their parents that you've got to watch what you post because you can't get into college. You won't get a job. You'll never be elected president if you post stuff like the millennials did. And so we're all much more cynical and careful about the Internet and about security. So the average Gen Zer has six different Internet profiles. And they curate their identities in different profiles based on who they allow in and who they don't. And so um, just being allowed into certain social media profiles is a real sign of love and trust for Gen Z. Wow, that helps to see different things that we would never consider without this conversation. But to sum it up, what are some of the best things each generation has to offer and how can we learn from each other? I think one of the best things the traditionalists have to offer <laughs> is their ability to stay calm and carry on. We have heard so often during the 2020 pandemic that we live in unprecedented times. And yes, we do. We who are boomers and younger live in unprecedented times. There's not been anything like this because we are actually a really privileged sets of generations. For most of humanity, there's been a war, there's been a pandemic. And so the point of it is we have more comfortable lives. What's unprecedented is how it, unprecedented it is to call all this unprecedented. So I think we learn from traditionalists to stay calm and carry on. You're not the first generation to go through a pandemic. You're not the first generation to go through a significant recession slash depression. It's awful. It will leave consequences. It will leave health consequences. It will leave economic consequences. Oh, it'll be hard, but you'll get through this. I think they're remarkably helpful in that way. They tell us to suck it up, buttercup, and sometimes they're right. And then for baby boomers, their willingness to go seek counseling. Boomers were nine times more likely to go to a counselor than the traditionalists were. That's a huge thing. They were also much more focused on being yourself. If there was a motto for the boomers, it was do your own thing. Now, for Gen X, Gen X brings us reality. Gen Xers have been great for marriage. Gen Xers were so dedicated to not putting their children through divorce that many of them, you know, they're like, either it's a good marriage or I just won't marry at all. Now, you can argue that some of them have such high expectations of themselves as parents that they overstress their children. And that would be a whole nother, a whole nother conversation. But their, their desire to be realistic about some of the challenges of marriage, some of the challenges of a citizen, some of the challenges at work. <laughs> I, remember, I remember the guy, the exer, who said to me, and uh, I was working at Amway, and he, he goes, I'm not signing the mission statement that's, you know, where you have to sign the mission and give your soul. I, I just want a job where I do good work and go home at night. I just want to do a good job while I'm here. I'm not giving bone marrow for this job. It was kind of a realistic approach to work that sometimes the baby boomers got carried away with. And then you've got millennials. And millennials are great in that they look at the challenges that we face in our institutions. And the reality of it is, you know, Time Magazine had a cover story in 2000 about how every measure of trust on all major institutions was down, the lowest it had ever been in the times they were at every institution, from education to religion. And so the millennials come into this environment and are still fairly hopeful in the midst of some major challenges in institutions. And so I think one of the things we can learn from them is, you know, their television show when they were growing up, Bob the Builder, can we build it? Yes, we can. And there is something great about being realistically optimistic in the midst of that. And Gen Z, Gen Z are plugging away. And I think one of the great things that Gen Z bring, you know, since your background is, is in mental and emotional health, Gen Zers are much more willing to talk about mental and emotional health than the other generations. TV personalities, movie personalities, musicians, and athletes are beginning to talk about their mental illness. 
much more openly. You know, so we find out now that that movie stars that have died were actually, you know, bipolar or suffered from depression or that Cary Grant took LSD to try to cope with some of his mental and emotional challenges. Or like, oh, you know, who would have known? Whereas today, people would talk about it quite openly, their mental challenge, their mental and emotional challenges. And and so it takes all of that out of the closet. Boomers are more willing to go to see a counselor. But Gen Z is much more willing to say, I suffer from anxiety. I suffer from depression. This is something I struggle with. To take it out of the closet and make it part of the conversation. Neurodiversity is kind of the new term for a lot of those things. And, and instead of autism being seen as, oh, we can't hire that person, you know, now organizations are saying, well, what's the best way you know, to make a person on the autism spectrum successful and have a rewarding career? And uh, you know, what roles can we put them in where they have a fulfilling career and we get the best productivity out of it? Those are conversations that wouldn't have happened even 10 years ago, but that Gen Z is much more comfortable with. Well, Hayden, I've found all of this to be so enlightening. And if people want to follow you further and find your resources, where would you direct us all to connect online? You bet. So peopledrivenresults.com is a, is a series of resources and goes into more information about the book, The Sticking Points, in its second edition, which just came out in the beginning of October. Wonderful. We will link to that in both our show notes and our resources tab of our website to make it easy for everyone to find. And you are familiar that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. And so as my final question for you today, Hayden, what is your Savvy Sauce? Well, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask. One of the key things the research shows is that Gen Xers value savvy over almost everything else, the ability to to face challenges and land on your feet. So I think all of us can appreciate, but especially Xers, savvy sauce will ring a note for them. And I think my savvy sauce is reading through all kinds of geeky information and details and studies and making it fun to talk about and making it feel real world. And for the most part, for the most part, you know, Mrs. Shaw doesn't always agree at dinner parties, but for the most part, making it something interesting enough that we're willing to learn about each other so we don't drive each other absolutely crazy. Well, I think your insights definitely promote peace. And Hayden, I just have to hold myself back from asking about 20 additional questions, but I just find you to be very interesting and energetic and extremely well-versed on this topic. You've given us an invaluable gift, both through your revised book and through our time spent together today. Thank you for being my guest. Well, thank you for having some savvy and some sauce in all of this. This is fun. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.